I want to start by explaining the rationale for picking uh, these texts. I mean, each of them is what you might call a classical text in the sense that it made a big difference to the way we subsequently thought about these questions. And it's not coincidental that these classical texts all have a very big picture in mind. And of course, most of uh, academic work has a smaller picture in mind. And there is a constant tension between the drive to get local particulars right and keeping an eye on why these questions are important in the first place. So it's not that I expect you to learn from somebody like Gordon Child, who's invented the notion of the urban revolution. I don't expect that his ideas will withstand another half century or more of, of academic scholarship. Nor do I imagine that the reality of African history uh, will uh, conform uh, easily to uh, some of these uh, more general texts, many of which were written long ago. I mean, the main point is that this course is an attempt to give you the chance to think big. I mean, you, we spend most of our time in academia trying to persuade you to think small. And the point of reading these texts is to get some idea of what it means to pose the big questions and to set out to answer them. Now, what I did this week was to start out with an attempt to develop an Afrocentric vision of the continent's relationship to world history through the Senegalese uh, writer Sheikh Amtad Jok, uh, who focused on the idea that Egypt was uh, essentially a black uh, society, ancient Egypt, and Walter Rodney, who was one of the leading exponents of revolutionary socialism in the early post-colonial period. Yes, last time I situated a very sketchy view of uh, Gordon Child's book, What Happened in History, and I want to amplify that today, but I tried to situate it within um, an equally sketchy view of global economic history, if you like. So what I want to do today uh, is to introduce a th another text, Martin Bernard's uh, Black Athena, the Afro-Asiatic Roots of Ancient Civilization, which is a withering critique of Eurocentric scholarship, historic global. I mean, essentially it's about how a racist version of world history was developed, especially in the 19th century, at the time of peak European imperial expansion but also since. And what I want to do is to talk about that a bit, but, but it seems to me that, that the most important thing is to clarify what this urban revolution might be thought to be, even though what I say will not match the best recent academic scholarship, which is constantly improving the details and, and in some cases undermining <coughs> the foundations of some of these assertions. But also, it seems to me that what I missed most was the application of Charles' vision to Africa and, uh, and to what we know about African uh, history. And the mediating figure in this is Jack Goody, an anthropologist who is still alive, he's actually 93, and he was my teacher in Cambridge. He started out as an ethnographer of northern Ghana, and from the mid-70s has produced a huge number of books seeking to explore the relationship first between Africa and Eurasia, that is the whole continental mass that includes Europe and Asia. And then in the last decade or more, he's focused more on 
trying to blow up the pretension of the Europeans to be exceptional and, and expose the degree to which they have downgraded Asian contribution to world history. And in the course of essentially elevating Asia at the expense of Europe, Africa has, has more or less dropped out of his picture. And I have summarized all that in an essay which is available on my website. The URL for my website is on the, the list. It's thememorybank.co.uk. And there it's called Jack Goody's Vision of World History and African Development, in which I lay out his debt to child, how he develops it, and then begin a critique of Goody's approach from the perspective of what we now know about African history and development. It's very clear that, that one of the key problems facing an attempt to depict Africa's place in world history is the Eurocentric and racist account of Africa's place in world history that has taken root in, uh, the, since the 19th century. I mean, as I mentioned on Monday, it's remarkable that in the 17th and 18th centuries, Europeans took inspiration from Egypt as the, the source of civilization in general. Uh, and in the 19th century began not only to downgrade Egypt's uh, contribution, but also to elevate that of Greece and making Greece, as it were, the, the origin of Western civilization. When, as Martin Bernal shows, uh, very, and, uh, most of us know, I mean, at some level, Greece was, for much of its history, a backwater in the Eastern Mediterranean, an Eastern Mediterranean society that was dominated by Egypt, by uh, insular populations like Crete and Cyprus, and by uh, the Lebanon, but sometimes known as uh, the Levant, and which were, was the home of one of the greatest peoples of the first millennium BC, the Phoenicians. A Phoenician comes from the Greek for purple, Phoenix. They were a trading people from Lebanon, city-states of Lebanon, in, a, in the ancient world, uh, dyes were extremely difficult to come by, and the most difficult dyes were blue and purple. And there were only, in fact, two vegetable sources for blue, which is indigo and woad. And uh, pink and purple were even more difficult to find, and the Phoenicians had a cache of clamfish or whatever, some shellfish, that yielded a, a purple dye. And so they were known as the purple people because the, everybody could make cloth, but what people wanted was special cloth, as you know. And, uh, and, and so they, they sold their, their cloth, which was fairly routine, white cloth, dyed pink or purple, and that made, gave it a premium price. It's still the case, of course, that to be born in the purple means to be royal. I'm, a, by training, a classical uh, student. I did my first work in, in, in classical languages and literature and history before becoming an anthropologist. So I've always had an interest in the ancient Mediterranean. And uh, in, uh, some time ago, when I was teaching at Yale, I had the opportunity to lead a graduate course on the transition from bronze to iron in the Eastern Mediterranean from 1600 to 500 BC. And in that course, I had classical archaeologists, Assyriologists, Egyptologists, anthropologists, and we kind of created a little work team and split the area up, as of course it is normally I mean, in academic scholarship, the Assyriologists and the classicists don't talk to each other. So what we did was, and there was another problem, which was the historical dates were all 
200 years later than the carbon dating from archaeological finds. So we set out to do a... So somebody got Italy, somebody else got Turkey, somebody else got uh, the Lebanon, Palestine, and somebody else got... and so on and so forth. And, and we, we, we tried to assemble uh, uh, the sources and try and see where, by putting them together whether we could arrive at a more solid dating. Since all of these questions were pursued by specialists who were only concerned with one bit of it. And uh, we found something quite interesting, which is that the iron initially was used for ornaments, uh, personal decoration. Uh, by extremely elite people in small quantities. And then, for some of them, like the Assyrians, it became a tool of warfare. They developed iron-based weapons and used that to build very rapidly an empire. And it took, in most cases, uh, 300 years at least for iron, which is the most commonly distributed metal on the planet, to find its, its ultimate use, which was in making tools for farming and, agri and, uh, and, and manufacturers uh, for ordinary people. And this, this, I, this sequence, if you like, is one that I have since uh, applied to the digital revolution, the rise of the internet. You know, you start out with you know, this huge room full of computer to which only the CIA and the army have access, and, and gradually you reach uh, mobile phones <laughs> that everybody has. Uh, but it takes time, only the, the process is speeding up. So, uh, you know, I have an interest in, in, in the Eastern Mediterranean, and of course Egypt is a major part of it, and we have become even more aware of the North African side of the Mediterranean in the last two years, through the Arab Spring, the revolutions, or attempted revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt and of course the war in Libya. So uh, these things have a, a real uh, point. I mean, the fact is that people in South Africa know nothing about North Africa. I can say that with great confidence. And vice versa. I mean, people in the rest of the world are interested in South Africa because of its exotic history. Uh, but they know very little about it. And when I approached the European network of uh, researchers into the social economy uh, and told them that uh, I was working in Pretoria, they said, oh my God, you know, because we just had our last conference in Morocco because we felt we had to have it in North Africa because that's where the action is. But we have no black Africans in our network at all. So can you supply us some kind of thing? <laughs> but so, so the point about the separation of the regions, uh, I mean, really matters. I mean, as I've said already, that in the first half of the, 19, uh, the 20th century, Pan-Africanism was a movement, a nationalist movement, uh, linking black people in Africa and abroad, in the New World and elsewhere, uh, around the drive to get the colonialists out and restore African land to Africans. I mean, that's, so it was a very inclusive project, but that project was actually undermined by its success, by the creation of national successor states, which very quickly lost any commitment to or vision of what they had in common before they won power from colonial empire. I mean, I, you know, I, I was very struck. I was going to talk about the difference between South African pop singers of the 1980s and their vision of Africa and the vision of Africa that South African rappers have today. But I'll leave that. Just to sum up this introduction, I, I tried to write a book on African development in the 21st century. And uh, the, res the, the residue of this effort will be found littered all over my personal website. It started in 2005 and it ended in 2012. It ended in 2012 because we had to have a party at home. 
and it meant clearing up a huge stack of old VHS tapes. And I managed to get hold of one that was an interview with me in 2005, in which I explained the, the scope of this work. And I realized I hadn't developed the idea at all in the seven years, and I hadn't realized it as a book yet. Probably never will, so I decided to leave it. Uh, but these lectures, I have to say, draw on that work of seven years, really. I mean, quite so. Maybe the book, as I conceived it, was impossible. But the great advantage of lectures, even if they're being canned, as these are, is that you're less accountable than when you produce a book. <laughs> so, uh, but while I was writing this book, I had a conversation once with a French woman. And she asked me to tell her what was in the book. And I said, well, I mean, the book is about how Africans in the 21st century are going to take over the world, basically. I mean, they're going to become a third of humanity, just those who live in Africa, never mind all the people of African descent who live elsewhere. And I believe, you know, that with certain favorable conditions, African economies can continue to grow considerably fast. And, uh, and this, I'm, I'm trying to write about that, how that might be possible. And while I'm telling her this, her face kind of goes, you know, I, I'm dealing with this and her face is hardening. And so, you know, because I'm nervous and, and a bit kind of responsive to people I'm having conversation with, I said, of course Africa's a mess. She said, yes, it's a mess. <laughs> It's a mess. I said, have you ever been to Africa? She said, no. <laughs> but what was very clear was for her and for many people in Europe, one of the linchpins of who they are is that Africa is a mess. That whatever else happens, maybe the Americans have taken over, maybe the Chinese are coming up on the rails, but at least the Africans will always be inferior. I mean, that is... That, that I think it matters enormously. And what's really difficult is to write about it, because nobody admits it. I mean, you know, I mean, I, when I was director of the African Studies Centre at Cambridge, they decided that we needed training in communications. So there was this journalist from The Guardian who came up and, and, and gave me a one-day session of how to answer interviews, which included uh, having an, a televised interview of my own with him. So he said, what's your topic? And I said, how the British media consistently undermine uh, Africa. And he said, it's not true, it's not true. We don't. We, I mean, we're in favor of Africa. We want to help them. And so on and so on. So I then had to go through this, this hostile interview with this guy. In which she said, okay, what do you think about them? So, but the, the, the point is that they don't even know that they depend so heavily on this. And, and especially the Europeans, more than the Americans. I mean, I don't think America is finished by a long shot, but I know that Europe is. And that uh, the biggest loser in the contemporary world crisis is Europe uh, and will be. And, uh, and so what we have is people who, in their heart, know that the game is up. Here are the people who, in the course of the 19th century, came to control 90% of the world's land surface, inhabited land surface. And what are they now? I mean, they can't even reproduce themselves. They have fertility rates which are half their death rates. So in order to survive at all, they have to bring people from Africa, the Middle East, and Eastern Europe to do the work that pays their pensions. And they hate them for it. They hate them. They make their life miserable. You know, they're xenophobic at the same time as they depend on these people. I mean, they are completely fucked up, I'm telling you. I mean, there, 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 there isn't a rational, European strategy for survival. I mean, they don't even have an army. 
I mean, the Brits and the French do their little neo-colonial sorties into North Africa, but the Europeans couldn't defend themselves from anybody. They depend on the Americans. And the Americans will pull the plug one day, you'd be sure. So here's a society which no longer has any rationale, but which can't admit that the game is up. So it's, it, it, it falls to people like Walter Rodney, Sheikh Antar Jot, Martin Bernard, to point out the history of this racist delusion. So this is the context. And of course there's a trap in this context. That if we say that all we have to do is to negate their delusion, then we may well miss the boat ourselves. And in many cases, African nationalists do miss the boat in seeking to negate what they understand very clearly is a conspiracy to keep them down. Okay, so let's get back to Gordon Child and the Urban Revolution. First of all, where was it? In the, uh, as I said, in the 17th and 18th century, and uh, for much of the 19th, it was assumed that civilization had one point of origin in ancient Egypt. But in uh, the course of the late 19th and 20th century, other uh, uh, claims uh, were made. And now, I think it's fairly conventional to argue that there are six uh, independent sources of urban civilization that people imagine uh, developed independently. It's not my guess, but I'm not a specialist. But these six, and not only Egypt, but now given priority is Mesopotamia, which is better known today as Iraq. Mesopotamia means between the two great rivers of the uh, Greek. Uh, uh, Tigris and Euphrates, it's where Baghdad is located. And I mean, Mesopotamia is these days considered to be uh, probably the most uh, distinctive and earliest form of urban civilization. In addition to that, there is the civilization of the Indus Valley between what is now India and Pakistan. I believe that. The archaeology of that region is hopeless. It, it got off to a bad start because it was the British who uh, uh, organized it. And uh, of course the British were very successful as propagandists. And they managed to persuade the world that India was the poorest and most unequal place on the planet. And they certainly didn't want to have to suggest that Indus Valley civilization uh, was one of the uh, precursors. I mean, there are several problems for the notion that Indus Valley is subsequent to Mesopotamia. One of which is that the Sumerians who founded uh, this uh, uh, civilization came from the east. It's also the case that the conditions for archaeology in northwest India are very difficult because of uh, uh, shifting uh, uh, geology and uh, rivers and so on, which, uh, but it's also the case that there was a more, I believe, a British conspiracy to downplay and postpone Indian civilization. Then, of course, there is Chinese civilization. I mean, I can't get into this here, but I, you know, I mean, we are just reaching the point where uh, we're beginning to understand. The Indian Ocean as a world system, with India at its uh, peak and combining Southeast Asia with East Africa and so on. This uh, exploration into the Indian Ocean as a world system is, uh, I think, is going to be very important in, in helping us to develop our notions of the world because the European uh, imperialists were reasonably happy to acknowledge that they were themselves dependent on a Near East civilization that included the Jews and uh, perhaps earlier the uh, Egyptians and, and, and indeed, you know, Jesus Christ came from the area. So, you know, there was a certain uh, interest in, 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 in making that the kind of source for Western civilization. 
And I think, I'm sure that in, in, in decades to come, uh, all of these things will be revised in various ways. But equally, I mean, uh, India's influence on the rest of Asia is much more profound than China's, for example. I mean, most of the Indian religion, uh, sorry, most Asian religions have a strong Hindu component or influence. Uh, but the whole question of India's relationship to the world and indeed to Africa uh, remains uh, as, as, as a problem. And there are, so, so in addition to those four old world urban civilizations, the connections between them being relatively unexplored and indeterminate, there are also two new world civilizations in the Andes, the Inca civilization, and in Mesoamerica, Mexico, the Aztecs, and so on. There is a guy called Paul Wheatley who wrote a book some time, a Chicago historian, called Pivot of the Four Quarters, and he claimed that Yoruba, Western Nigerian uh, urban civilization, had some claim to be being uh, an independent source in its own right. That uh, is something, I'll, I'll go into this later, I don't think it's really sustainable and nobody else has taken it up. But the book is a really great book, Pivot of the Four Quarters. I mean, the ancient Egyptian symbol for the city is this, okay? Which is to say it's a fortified market, it's a crossroads and it has a wall. And Max Weber, in his uh, essay, The City, uh, built on, specifically on the Egyptian symbol, but built on this notion in trying to develop an idea of the Occidental city, the Western city. Gordon Child produced a list, I mean, it's a shopping list, really, of some of the features of the first cities, the first urban civilizations. And uh, these included a division of labor, that there were, for the first time, people who worked entirely from uh, metalworking, let's say, and not from farming. In other words, that there was a, a separation between urban specialists and agriculture, which remained the, the dominant form of production. He emphasized, obviously, the uh, uh, developments of the state, the development of larger population centers than ever existed before, the development of bureaucracy, of writing. Uh, he had some ideas about the forms of art which have not really stood up. And his main focus was on Mesopotamia, on Iraq, on the cities that developed there. And basically this was a civilization from around 3000 BC, 5000 years ago, roughly half the time that has elapsed since the invention of agriculture. And he also insisted, because he was a Marxist, that anything but bare subsistence produced in the countryside was extracted as rent or tribute and used to support uh, an urban elite that manifested itself in monumental buildings and so on and so forth. So, so this, this is the general picture. He doesn't say really how this came about, he just says this was a revolution uh, and so on. Now, now Jack Goody, uh, in his various books, this is the first of his great comparisons, production and reproduction, he starts by asking the question, why is it that kinship forms, forms of kinship and marriage in Europe and Asia, Eurasia, are fundamentally different from those that are normally found in Africa? He doesn't think, talk about the new world at all in this book. He just talks about the old world. And his uh, thesis is that the key to the difference in these ways in which family life is organized lies in property. This, of course, was the theme of Rousseau that uh, I mentioned last time. And that the forms and significance of property can only be understood 
in the context of the organization of production. So, what he emphasizes in looking at, uh, at Gordon Sharp, but he draws very heavily on Gordon Sharp's analysis, is that, I mean, I spoke last time about how agriculture, when compared with hunter-gathering, involved the in intensification of labor inputs, that people had to put in more work in some respects to get less out proportionally for, the, for how much work they put in. And that this lends itself to increased inequality uh, in society, which need not initially take the form of states and classes and, and, and so on, but, but can be manifested in a transformation of the relations between men and women and between older men and younger men and so on and so forth. So that so-called tribal societies which are based on agriculture or herding, uh, farming or herding, uh, support uh, a higher level of inequality without so far the development of distinct classes of people who uh, have relations to each other of uh, superordination and subordination and who live in fundamentally different ways. So uh, Jack Goody is, uh, starts from this question of why, you know, why is it that agriculture was intensified significantly in these areas, in Mesopotamia, Egypt, and so on. And what were the consequences for property and for relations which were then expressed in kinship and marriage uh, organization? And his argument is that the urban civilizations relied on highly intensive agricultural techniques of which the plow and irrigation were the most important. And although the plow and irrigation produce, uh, allow, what, I mean what they allow is a greater yield from a given land area, but they also involve the investment of proportionately more human labor in the process of extracting it. So what you get is rising land productivity and diminished labor productivity so that eventually the vast bulk of rural workers uh, are living barely above subsistence, usually under coercive regimes which include serfdom and slavery and which are often organized culturally as racial systems. So uh, uh, what Jack Goody uh, argued was that in, in most of Africa, south of the Sahara, people were scarce relative to land. And so uh, what that meant was that uh, uh, land had very little value because there were very few people to cultivate it. In Mesopotamia and places like it, it was land that had the highest value, not the labor. So he, he felt that the opposite in Africa was the case, that land had little value because it wasn't scarce, and that meant the people had the highest value, and especially women, because in whole agriculture, throughout most of Africa, women do most of the agricultural work, and of course they are the bearers of children. So in the uh, urban civilizations, on the other, the, the societies of the urban revolution, what becomes uh, the highest priority is to transmit valuable land within the king group as far as possible. In other words, the, the biggest problem is how, how to, to, to make sure that you keep your wealth. And your wealth is, more than anything, land. And in order to keep it as close as possible, uh, they shifted from the African pattern, which is to marry out, exogamy, you marry out, to a pattern of marrying in. You marry people like you in order to maintain your family's status. I mean, the thing that you're worried about most of all is losing status as a family through the failure to conserve your property. So one of the problems that you face, what if you're a family 
and you don't have any sons. You face the prospect of the land having to go to some other male relative, or you say, well, we'll pass the land on to our daughters. And this, of course, is what happened, is that daughters, females, became jointly re retained in inheritance of, 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 of family land. Uh, in Africa, it's very different. Uh, 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 kinship is unilinear, which is only one of the genders uh, inherits uh, property, which can be women or it could be men, but it's, uh, it's always only one generation, only one gender. And so what, what Goody uh, and, and, and Child between them are seeking to explain is where did the nuclear family come from? Where did the idea that the children of a, a single pair of parents have a strong internal relationship that cuts them off from other kin? Which of course in African systems is not the case. I mean, people are always part of extended uh, kinship groups. So the idea of the nuclear family is a consequence, if you like, of this attempt to, uh, first of all, to preserve land, then to make women heiresses. And, and then from there, he develops uh, an argument about uh, kinship uh, patterns, in which he, he says, okay, so if you want to conserve property in this way, the first thing is you go for a nucleated kinship pattern. The second thing is you go for endogamy, marrying within the group as closely as possible. And you ban premarital sex because these uh, heiresses are now very important strategically for the politics and property of the family. So you can take them out of any adolescent sexual shenanigans they might be involved in. And, and, and elevate the, the principle of virginity and make a big deal out of all that stuff, none of which sells all that well in most of Africa. So, 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 so what he's trying to do is to, uh, so he's saying that Sub-Saharan Africa missed out on the urban revolution. And as a result, it missed out on intensification of production. It meant that class divisions were not as fully developed, and to a certain extent, uh, cities and states were weakly developed also. I mean, the central point about the state that Lewis Henry Morgan and Engels made the center of their 19th century versions of this story is that you need the state when you divide the people in their lifestyle and prospects so thoroughly and so unequally that you need some central force to keep the poor down. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the, 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 the fundamental story. Okay, before I finish by going back to the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, this becomes for me, for all its difficulties, a basis for thinking about regional divisions in Africa. I mean, and I said that Africa only exists either as a racial category, the land of the blacks, or as some kind of territory, a continent, in which all kinds of people live. And what I argue in, in this paper and elsewhere is that we can initially compare, we can identify North Africa with urban civilization because it was part of it from the beginning. Uh, call it agrarian civilization, if you like, to, to, to identify that the fundamental basis of production was agriculture. That Southern Africa, at least for a time, was considered to be exceptional, particularly because of the scale of its industrial capitalism, and also because the racist white settler society of Southern Africa had no real parallels elsewhere in the continent, except possibly, and to a lesser extent, in places like Kenya. And that there is this, pit, this uh, section in the middle, West Africa, Central Africa, East Africa, 
which of course is involved in Atlantic trade or Indian Ocean trade, which has urban uh, points on its coastline. The part of West Africa that is south of the Sahara, the Sahel, the, 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 the grasslands that, are, that separate the Sahara Desert from the forest uh, areas, that area has maintained a very uh, advanced and uh, differentiated civilization for a very long time, especially in the area that we now know of as Mali. This was a, a caste-based uh, civilization with slaves, with uh, extreme uh, social differentiation, and with mo moderate urban centers and states and so forth. I mean, I, I have an anecdote that I like to tell for people who imagine that this area was always a, a backwater. Uh, the king uh, of Mali, uh, Mansa Musa, in, in the 13th century, went on the pilgrimage to Mecca because after the 7th century, much of this area uh, became part of uh, Islam. And uh, on his way to, uh, to Mecca, he spent so much gold in, in Egypt as to cause runaway inflation there for 30 years. So this is just... And there's another guy from Ghana, which is a, a, an even more ancient state, uh, who turned up in Baghdad in the 7th century with a note of credit that was several times larger than any known to the caliphate at the time. Just a note of credit. The guy turns up from Ghana in West Africa with a note of credit that nobody's seen the size of before. So, I mean, you know, the, the, there's a lot to be said. A lot to be said about Aksum in Ethiopia, about Nubia and uh, the Sudan and its relationship to the Nile Valley. There's a great deal to be said all about this. But it is the case that, uh, generally speaking, uh, the degree of urbanization and state formation in this central region was relatively weak and that is why Jack Goody could treat that region, if you like, as an entity in contrast with the urban civilization of North Africa. My basic uh, thought, if you like, if we ask what happened in the 20th century, in the 20th century, North Africa remained an agrarian civilization. It did not make the transition to industrial capitalism. Uh, South Africa developed as an industrial capitalist center, but in the last 20 years, perhaps South Africa is, is, is moving under African majority rule into a pattern that is more similar to the rest of Africa than it was before. But the main thing that I would argue is that in the 20th century, the middle belt of African societies made the transition from tribal to urban society. In other words, they, they, they made Charles transition through colonialism and post-colonialism, not to capitalism, but to agrarian civilization. That is to say, uh, urbanized states in which narrowly based elites lived off the uh, surpluses generated by intensified agriculture. That's, uh, that's my, 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 my thing. So I left myself five minutes for, <laughs> for, for Martin Bernard. It's a huge book, about 500 pages. But in it, he, he documents very clearly how it came about and when that European intellectuals started drawing a line behind Greece in southeastern uh, Europe, in, in the eastern Mediterranean, and the rest of the country. And this involved, as Sheikh Antar Job shows, the denigration, the widening of ancient Egypt at the expense of all the evidence that shows it might have been otherwise. The point being that imperialism, which really only took off in the 1830s, there had been European exploration and settlement and colonial extraction on a small scale 
before then, but from the, the 1830s, the Industrial Revolution really kicked in and the uh, Europeans suddenly found themselves with tools for domination they never had before. Uh, Speedboats, for example, which allowed them to go up rivers and not just remain on the coasts. They elaborated the uh, methods for killing people without risking their own lives, of which the latest manifestation is drones. That whole history that allowed for global domination through genocide is explore, explored by a, a, a brilliant book by a guy called Sven Lindqvist. And it's called Exterminate All the Brutes. Uh, but what it's about really is the history of techniques of killing at a distance at low personal risk. And, and how that was then used uh, to uh, acquire the kind of controls that were exercised. So the basic thing is the 19th century from the 1830s onwards created a new situation in which it became possible to exercise white uh, dominance around uh, the world on a scale that had never been known before. And the relations that previously had been fairly equal between local elites and uh, imperial, Western imperial expansion uh, began to be changed into a system of permanent domination. And the justification for this domination uh, became more acute and the need for such a justification. And it was in this context that, that a racial ideology dividing the world into peoples at different stages of development who were identified by uh, pseudo-biological features uh, came into being. So, Bernard's book, which I can't summarize because it's very detailed, it took the poor guy ten years, well, it took me seven years not to write a book, so he, he took him ten years to write one. The ancient Mediterranean was, uh, in some way, a microcosm of Atlantic society in the modern period. Because all the main actors were concentrated in the eastern end of it. Uh, the Phoenicians, as I've already mentioned, the Greeks, and others. The society was more or less divided between trading cities who uh, essentially uh, lived from waterborne commerce, the great rivers or the sea, and people who controlled the land military aristocracies, I've mentioned this already. And the history of the first millennium BC is a series of wars and revolutions between the two sides. The landed side was called aristocrats and the, uh, the commercial uh, uh, urban uh, populations identified themselves as democrats. It started out with the Assyrians jumping all over the Phoenicians in their uh, Lebanese uh, coastal cities. So the uh, Phoenicians had to move west, and they, they moved uh, into the western Mediterranean and established Carthage. They became the Carthaginians, the people that the Romans were opposing. Uh, in Greece, uh, first of all, the Persians tried to snuff out the Greeks with their cities. The Greeks managed to survive that. Then the Greeks fought each other between Athens and Sparta, the Peloponnesian War, Athens being the uh, waterborne commerce power, uh, Sparta being the military landlord power. That was fought to a standstill. When that was over, uh, Philip of Macedon and his son Alexander came in with their Macedonian cavalry, took over Athens and wiped out commercial civilization in Greece. They then went as far as India, all over Persia, Egypt, and created Hellenistic empires, all based on military coercion and extraction of, of, of tribute from dependent uh, producers on the land. The sole uh, survivor of this mayhem was Carthage. And so it became, I mean, Rome, of course, is uh, a military landlord society, but it, the, the, so in fighting uh, Carthage, uh, Hannibal and all these people, the Romans 
were essentially the last act of this millennial-long uh, struggle, which was not just between uh, different rival empires, but was present in every city. There were factions from each side in every city. There were revolutions as one side uh, displaced the other. And event but you can understand why Scipio Africanus, when he defeated Carthage, sowed salt into the ground to make sure that life would never grow there again. You can understand the passion that these people felt. They've been fighting for a thousand years. The thing that's really interesting is that the, the Romans, who never really developed a navy, when they were the Latins, were given ships by the Phoenicians in their battle with the Etruscans. They set up the Latins Ships were the nuclear weapons of this period. There's a treaty that we know, that one of the historians has got it, and it says, you can have these ships, and uh, please you know, use them against the Etruscans, but if you ever land on any of our territory, especially Sicily, we'll destroy you and all your ships. I mean, it couldn't be clearer, really. Well, you know, the, the, the Romans never became very good at naval tactics because, you know, they were the guys who knew how to apply force on the land. A bit like the British and the French. You know, the British had got the navy, the French had got the land army. So anyway, this is the, 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 the kind of background that, that Bernal's rather more literary history is trying to introduce you to. I, I suspect, especially given my introduction to the book, that none of you will ever read it. But if you know, I, 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 I think one of the interesting things to me, and this is my last point, is that Jack Goody doesn't like Bernard's book. And yet I would have thought Bernard's book supports everything that he wants to say. But that's a question I haven't asked him about yet. Thank you.